the first thing I'd like to do this morning is to be politically incorrect. I wasn't yet. Merry Christmas. That's from our family. That's from the GBC family. You know, I find it amazing in our culture. And by the way, for those that were offended, you are in a church, okay? Just put two and two together, and we worship Jesus, so we say things like Merry Christmas. Have you noticed that we've lost perspective, and as a result, our culture's gone insane? We just sang about the name of Jesus being powerful and being a shelter, you know, a contrast that it is strong, and yet its strength is in how it cares for each. And yet, we want to quiet the name of Jesus. Of course, the only way we're gonna, they're going to do that is if we stop talking about Jesus. You can't legislate it out of people's lives. I found it interesting that Lifeway Research surveyed a bunch of people, said, are you planning to go to Christmas service this year? 61% of Americans said they would. They were planning it. They surveyed the rest that said they weren't going to, and they found an interesting fact. 57% of those that were not planning on going to church said they would likely go if someone asked them. So who'd you invite this morning? Who did you speak the name of Jesus to? You know, Christmas, we all start with the nativity scene and the baby and Mary and Joseph. And down through the years, the narrative keeps getting rewritten. In our case today in America, they're trying to remove Christ out of Christmas. They don't want to remove the holiday because they still went off from work, but they want to take what we celebrate and make it something that it really is. And this is normal. I think about how we rewrite history constantly according to the current politically correct bias. Take the whole refugee thing going on right now. Here's what you don't hear in the news. What isn't being told about refugees today is the persecution of Christians. Now, if you're not aware of this whole Muslim Christian thing, it goes way back to when Abraham decided to have a child by someone other than his wife. Muslims believe that Muhammad is a descendant of Abraham through Ishmael. But in present day, the conflict still exists. And there's been an estimated from 2013 to present day, there's been an estimated in the Middle East, due to this conflict, over one million Christians killed at the hands that practice the descendants of Ishmael. That's their Christmas. When you look at the refugee camp, sometimes Christians can't go in because their enemies are there. Other times, it's just sheer tribal. There's tribes that don't like each other. And so this refugee crisis is far greater and far different than we hear spelled out in our public media. You see, in the Middle East, if you happen to be a Christian, live in a Muslim country, they give you three choices. One is to convert, 
One is to pay the jishya, it's a tax for non-Muslims, or to be beheaded. That's your three choices for this Christmas. I was fascinated this past week. I heard an interview because somebody was on the ground in a country, I'm not going to mention, getting Christians out. And they were interviewing these Christians that could not go with them. And the question was asked them, well, why don't you just fake it? Why don't you just say, you know, yeah, we're following Muhammad, and you'll save you and your family, your kids, your grandkids. You won't have to watch them slaughtered. And halfway through that, the person interrupted them in Aramaic and said this. I'm looking for what they said. (laughs) Okay, here it is. This is the translation. No, we will die before we claim allegiance to a false god. So as they celebrate Christmas, it may cost them their life. So how do you find God in the midst of such evil? You know, I like Mary's response. When she found out she was pregnant, let's be honest, it had trouble written all over it. You know human nature. Pregnant teenager comes along and says, this child is a child of God. Who's going to believe her? She's going to be misunderstood. We find out later they're on the run. Male babies were going to be slaughtered. They're going to be blamed because everybody knows that Joseph and Mary claimed this to be the Messiah. And crazy Herod decided to slaughter male babies. Ultimately, she'd have to watch her own son die. But remember what she said in Luke 1, verse 38, when she found out? I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What an incredible attitude. So where do you find God in all this? We've been looking at the 400 years, and really it was thousands of years of anticipation. And there was so much anticipation to explain why. That when we get to Matthew, have you ever noticed what the first verses are? Turn there to Matthew chapter 1. I call this the literary credits. It's the front end. If Jesus is the story, what we have is a list of people. And it starts out this way in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are the people they list who make this possible. You ever wonder why all these names that you can't, can't pronounce are there? I mean, they're part of the story. And so often we skip over these names and we go to what we call the meat of the word, but they are here for a reason. So follow with me. I'm going to read these names. I will probably do them very poorly. But if you would like to do it, I welcome you to the stage right now. Any volunteers? Look at verse 2. Starts with Abraham. He was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abimadad. Abimadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. 
Remember Rahab? She was the prostitute. Walls of Jericho fell down. She rescued the people. She was actually a non-Jew. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, talk about a scandal. He's cheating on his other wives. She gets pregnant to hide it up. He kills her husband. Did you ever wonder why Jesus, I mean, God sovereignly ordains everything, amen? You ever wonder why God chose some of these people in his lynch? I mean, he could have chose any one of David's wives, but he chose Uriah. He chose Rahab. He chose Tamar. And if you remember about Tamar and what she did, it was just, you know, unthinkable. She seduced her father-in-law. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome, Jerome, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Joachai, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, Okay. Now we start the 400 silent years. After the exile of Babylon, Jehoiakim, the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abada. Abada, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elud. Elud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And then we read these words. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus were the 14th generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile of Christ. They're more than just names. Every one of these people has a story. They had a life, and they had an important life. And I can almost guarantee you none of them thought that they would be the lineage where Christ, the child, would be born. They didn't realize how important their contribution to future history would be. But all these people prepared the way of the Messiah. That's their legacy. Some had in unbelievable courageous lives and I think about Abraham he got up and left everything never realizing his dream of the place and yet a whole nation still exists today because of that courageous choice the man had a hard time having kids and you know as courageous as he was he did incredibly stupid things as well remember how not once but twice he tried to pass his wife off as his sister, because he was afraid of what the king would do because she was so attractive. Some lived incredibly chaotic lives. There was Tamar who seduced her father-in-law to keep the family line going. And that family line produced the Messiah. The king who decided he wanted his friend's wife and When he accidentally got her pregnant, had him killed to cover it up. I mean, this is the list 
of generation after generation, a list of lives that were messy. But I have a question for you this morning. Do you desire to find this child king, this king of kings, this lord of lords? Do you desire to find and bow down to worship him? There's a lot of things we can say about these lists of names. The obvious one is it's there because it proves the prophetic record was right. But I think it's there for more reasons than just saying, look, the prophecy foretold is accurate. I think one of the key lessons is this. Life always comes back to relationships. It comes back to our relationship with God. It comes back to our relationship with self. It comes back to our relationship with everyone else around us. Life is about relationships. And all these relationships is what produced the Christ child. And it's why we gather here to worship. It also tells us there's an element of mystery in life. I mean, who could have put that group of people together to produce the lineage that it did and have Jacob and Mary come together to do a Christ child? And we got the whole virgin birth thing. I mean, try to explain that. There's a mystery to it. All the prophecies being accurately foretold, there's a mystery to it that God's in control. I was at a conference one time and I was hearing R.C. Sproul speak. And he was trying to talk about the sovereignty of God, how God's in control, and our free will, and how it comes together. And he said, here's the best way I can explain it. He goes, it's mystery. You got the sovereignty of God over here, and you got the free will of man here, and God brings them down together and says, you can't figure it out. You can't figure it out. Yeah, L.C. Sproul. Theologian, that's exactly what he did. But he's right, isn't he? We would like to figure it out, but let's be honest, we can't. It's a mystery. I think another truth about this list is that your theology frames your life and work. See, our theology is our set of beliefs about God and his interaction with this world. What you choose to believe will determine how you respond and act. If you need an illustration, think about climate change today. What you choose to believe will determine who you believe and what you do in response to who you believe. The same way with Scripture. Do we really believe that God ordained all these relationships to the point where a Christ child was born? Because if you do, that will determine how you choose to live. You see, we all have theology. It just depends where we get it from. John 16. I want you to turn there. I'm going to start at verse 23. Here's the theology of Christ speaking to us about his name. John 16, verse 23. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, that's crucial there, those last three words. Asking in accordance with who he is. 
But you notice the first part, in that day, you'll no longer ask me anything. It almost sounds like he's contradicting, but he's not. He's saying, listen, the way you used to ask, that's going to die off. You're not going to ask about stuff anymore. You bought into a mission. You bought into my name. And in accordance with me, your asking is going to take a whole different perspective. Verse 24, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you'll receive, and your joy will be complete. Now, again, the context is he's not saying we're asking for stuff. He's already told the disciples that they're going to have a life of grief, of persecution, of suffering. They're all going to die horrible deaths. He's already told them that when you need God in the midst of this, when you ask in my name... And by the way, there's a very significant shift here because prior to this point, they would ask in the name of Abraham. So this is something radical. This is something new. This is something that people didn't do. And it's why the Pharisees and Sadducees and other kinds of religious leaders were really upset because, no, you don't pray in Jesus' name. You pray, Father Abraham. That's the one you pray to. But Jesus says, Now it's me. But did you pick up the key lesson here? The key lesson is that God wants you to have joy. Why do we ask? Why do we receive? He says, your joy will be complete. So if we don't have joy, we got to go back and see what we're asking for. Because if we ask in his name and we ask for the right things, our joy will be complete. You see how that works? And it's the kind of joy that no one can take away. See, human joy says, what can I get? Divine joy says, what can I give? He goes on to say in verse 20, some things I've already said. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. So the world's having a party out here and you're suffering for the sake of Jesus. You will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. Then he gives this illustration. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So he's just not talking about present joy. He's talking about future joy. That we struggle in this world, and we struggle, and we have joy, but there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of suffering. But when we see him face to face, that joy becomes perfect, whole, and complete. So God wants you to have joy. Now, I hope you saw another lesson in here. God's saying this, that the world is not in the condition that God wants it to be. Endless numbers of people. I talked about some this morning. They live in sorrow. They're lonely. They cannot imagine a life of joy. There are those that sit among us where Christmas is a very difficult time. I had a good friend in Canada who became a Christian later in his life. And the holiday season we call Christmas, was one of the most painful for him because of the way he was raised and because of what happened in his family context when he was growing up. 
But the world is not in the condition that God wants. There's just too many things wrong. And have you ever noticed that the very first thing to go in people's life is laughter? And I've come to believe that our culture has lost its sense of humor. You don't see a lot of laughter anymore, at least appropriate laughter. Everything's a crisis and a lawsuit waiting to happen. But here's the third point of this passage in John 16. Joy is not something that life brings to you, but that you bring to life. Joy is not based upon your circumstances. It's not based upon your conditions. It's not based upon your relationships. It's based upon your theology. See, some people are waiting for their dreams to bring them joy. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says, I want to bring you joy in your dreams. And it's why he says some crazy things like this in James 1, 2, chapter 1. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. And we read that and we say he's crazy. But this is the power of joy. It's resilient through crisis. I think about Nehemiah. He was called by God one day to go back to his homeland and over a century, Jerusalem lay in ruin. And there was no joy. There was only blame and excuses. They had all the reasons why they were in the state they were at, and they blamed the prophet Jeremiah, and they blamed God, and they blamed their neighbors, and they blamed the wealthy people that still had some wealth. I mean, just blame and excuses. Long comes Nehemiah. And in a few days helps build a wall they couldn't build in 110 years. He gave them a vision. You see the wall lay in ruin, but that wasn't the real issue. Also, the word of God laid in ruin. And so he pulls it out. They read it. There's conviction. There's weeping. There's tearing up clothes. And here's what Nehemiah says after all this happens. In chapter 8, verse 10, Go and enjoy, go and have joy, choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now we quote that last part so often. But Nehemiah spoke that when an entire nation laid in ruins. So I have a question for you this morning. Who stole your joy? Now, that's a trick question. (laughs) Because according to John 16, nobody can steal your joy except for you. I mean, we we can sit back and say, you know what? If if I change my marriage, then I'm going to have joy. Or if I change my family or if I change my work, or if I change my circumstances, then I'll have joy. No, that's not the way God works. God says, you ask anything in my name, in my name. See, if you ask things in your name, if you ask things according to your want list, you're not going to have joy. But if you ask things in my name, he will produce a very mature joy. So it's not based on what's around you. It's based on what's here. It's based on here, your theology about who God is. There's one last point I want to make this morning, and I want to do so by telling you a story. It's a story that was written 
and it happened many years ago. And do you know how we often say that today people are crazy and back then they would never do crazy things? Well, let me tell you about Cora and George. Cora lived till she was 102 years old. And one day after she passed, her grandkids found her diary. Now, evidently, Cora and George met when they were double dating, okay? Cora with her boyfriend and George with his girlfriend. And I guess they were so infatuated with each other, after the date, they began secretly going out with each other and not telling their boyfriend and girlfriends. So you got this little triad thing going on here. This went on for months. Nobody knew the better. Finally, here's what she wrote in her diary. She says, one night George looked at me and said, Cora, you have to choose, and I have to choose. If I'm going to love you, I must love you in the open. And they did, and they got married, and I'm sure their grandkids, when they found this little piece, were like, oh, man, Grandma and Grandpa, what's going on here? You know, this whole finding God deal, I'm going to tell you, he's not hiding. And we often talk about personal relationships. I want to rephrase that. He wants a public relationship. Now, I don't know if they still use this today, but with God, PDA is allowed. Do they still use PDA? Public display of affection? <laughs> Here's the point. He wants to love you in the open. That's what Christmas is about. It's about a public relationship. It's about people expressing their love for the Savior, this, this child that has transformed their lives. And yes, life is still messy. And yes, we still live in a dark world. And yes, we still have relationships that we'd like to get rid of. And yes, we can add all those kinds of things. But in the midst of this, God wants to love us in the open and he wants to give us joy. Now, we live in a world where luxuries have become necessities and excess has become normal. We live in a world where lifestyles are up for negotiation and we lost perspective. There's an old hymn. I didn't even check our hymn book to see if it's there. Remember the hymn, Have You Any Room for Jesus? who bore your load of sin. As he knocks and asks admission, sinner, will you let him in? In one of the verses, it says, room for pleasure, room for business. But then it ends up, have you any room for Jesus? You know, we pick on the innkeeper constantly about not letting Joseph and Mary in. But how many times have we delegated Jesus to the stable saying, you know what? I want to keep it private and personal and not public. I think for all of us here this morning, there are places in our heart that we have not allowed Jesus to have access. The tragedy is those places we find no joy. And so like George asking Cora, God asks you this morning, if we're going to take this love relationship somewhere, I have to love you in the open. And like Mary, I hope we recognize our mission. 
I hope we accept our mission. I hope we engage in our mission. I hope we follow God in such a way that allows him to lead us. That even though the world doesn't want Jesus, it needs Jesus, and we make this world a better place because we happen to live here in the year 2015. So let's give Christ the significant he deserves this Christmas. Amen? Here's what I want to close, and I can ask the worship team to come up a while, but I want us to recite an Advent prayer together. And I hope this is the prayer of your heart. So pray with me, please. Come, long-expected Jesus. Excite me in a wonder at the wisdom and power of your Father and ours. Receive my prayer as part of my service of the Lord who enlists me in God's own work for justice. Come, long-expected Jesus. Excite me in a hunger for peace. Peace in the world, peace in my home, peace in myself. Come, long-expected Jesus, excite me in a joy responsive to the Father's joy. I seek his will so I can serve with gladness, singing, and love. Come, long-expected Jesus, excite me in the joy and the love and peace it is right to bring to the manger of my Lord. Raise in me, too, sober reverence for the God who acted there, heartily gratitude for the life that begun there, and spirit of resolution to serve the Father and the Son. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise in the assembly of God. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody with him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations.